something I don't do very much. I, I haven't been done, done it here in, in months. I'm going to, I have a whole scripted message for you. Usually I walk around, but today I, I have it scripted, so I'll be kind of standing here. And we're going to be looking at the story of, uh, of Esau. How to avoid being a fool. A lesson Esau learned the hard way. Uh, I want to say, out of respect for Esau, 20 years later, uh, Esau, Esau gets very angry that his brother has, he feels, cheated him out of his birthright, when actually Esau uh, just low-regarded it. His brother does something else. He goes into the father with a bunch of really hot, good Persian food. Uh, <laughs> he brings in some really, some really great food because uh, Esau's mother says, your brother is really angry. He's going to kill you. So he says, I want she, she wants him to go in and get the birthright from the father, the father Yitzchak is very old, and he's functionally blind. He's really blind. So Jacob goes in, he kills a, uh, a, uh, a goat, and he cooks it up. His mother cooks it up just the way the father likes it because she knows that the old man is just, he's a man of appetites. And uh, he brings that into the father in order to impersonate Esau, who's the older brother, to impersonate Esau, and to get the blessing. And, and Isaac says, well, you know, he says, let me feel you, my son. But he's taken the, the, the skin of the goats and put it on his hands because his brother's very hairy. And he's put it on his hands, on his arms. And so the father feels it. He says, well, he says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He says, are you really Esau, my son? He says, yes, dad, I am. He's not. And the father bestows the patriarchal blessing on him and blesses him with fruitfulness and with, with ascendancy over his brothers, etc., etc. And these words of blessing cannot be withdrawn. Esau later comes in bringing food for the father because he wants to receive the blessing. His father says, who are you? He says, I'm Esau. He says, oh, he says, who was it who stole the blessing? It was Jacob. Esau is hacked off. 
But I want to give Esau some credit before we look at him as a bad example. 20 years later, Jacob goes off to his mother's homeland, to Padan Aram, uh, which is basically Iraq. He goes there, he finds a wife, Rachel and Leah, two wives. He has children, and eventually he comes, comes back. And when he comes back, he hears that Esau is on his way to meet him with 400 people with him. And Jacob is terrified. Because the last time he saw his brother, he had to get out of town quick. His mother said, get out of town, or I'll be bereft of, be bereft of two sons in one day. Because Esau doesn't want anything to do with his mother anymore after she colluded with his brother to take the birthright, which he had already sold. And yet, when Esau meets his brother Jacob, he embraces him, he kisses him, he treats him kindly. So I want to give Esau tremendous credit because I don't know if I could have been forgiving like that even after 20 years. But we're going to begin 20 years earlier where Esau proves himself at a younger age to be a fool. And the reason we're going to look at this is because we've got to avoid the same thing. So let's see what we got. Losing your birthright and being a fool. One of the saddest transactions in all of the Bible is found in today's Sedra. Here we see poor, stupid Esau bartering away the blessing of God for a two-bit plate of stew. Poor Esau. What a fool. We would be fools ourselves were we to simply see this as a story about how the Jews and the Arabs became enemies, or simply a story about sibling rivalry, or about a dysfunctional family, or even a story about how the blessing of Abraham was transmitted through the seed of Jacob instead of Esau. No, no, no. This story is much more than that. This is a story about us. It presents a perfect warning to us against our own tendency to barter away the blessing of God and of relationship with him for more immediate and often sensual satisfactions. We saw this kind of sad scenario played out before our eyes most dramatically recently in the sad saga of the fall from grace of Prince Andrew, the second son of Queen Elizabeth II, who is the most remarkably honorable person of my lifetime. She has always acted with honor and dignity. But Andrew, as you may have heard, it came to light that Andrew had been involved with uh, Jeffrey Epstein and had had sex at least with one woman we know it, uh, 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 who was uh, 17 years old, because Jeffrey Epstein was a very, very rich pimp. And, uh, and Andrew was a very, very rich nobleman. He was, when he was born, he was the second in line to be king of England. His brother Charles was first, 
Now he's, at least he was until recently, he may still be eighth in line because Charles's children uh, came along and then their children's children came along. But getting back to Andrew, he's a very, very, very rich man with a life of unmitigated privilege and dignity. He was a sponsor of 230 charities, 230 charities in, in the UK and elsewhere, where he was known as the patron. He would give money. He lent his name to it. Uh, he was a person of tremendous, tremendous prestige. But then it's come to light that he's going around uh, uh, getting involved uh, not just with um, illicit sexual relationships. Unfortunately, that runs in the family. But this is illicit sexual relationships with minors. And he's been booted out of the Buckingham Palace. His office has been taken away from him. He's not, uh, all of his privileges are gone right now. And there you see him. Look at, you know, I must say, I know he's a fool, but I feel sorry for the poor sap. Look at all that he's lost. Look at the dignity that he's lost. Look at the reputation, the scrap of reputation that he had that he's lost. So we're going to look today about how to avoid losing our birthright and being a fool. Come on, you. You can do it. Thank you. There are four ways. I can't speak for all of you, but I would guess that many of you, and certainly some of you, will face occasion in your life when you will be tempted to trade everything you know about God for some sort of short-term satisfaction. We read in today's Messiah reading of how after tempting Yeshua in the wilderness, the devil deserted him. Uh, one translation says, until an opportune time. The devil deserts him until a more opportune time. And for many, if not most, if not all of us here, there will be such devilish opportune times in which our lives and our time, in our lives and in our times, when the onslaught against us can be withering, like trying to maintain your spiritual footing in the midst of a hurricane. The issue before us today is how will we prepare for the evil day, what Paul calls the evil day, the day when evil comes against you, tailor-made. If you're seeking to make headway for the kingdom of God, you can be sure that at pivotal times, your resolve, your character, your faith in God and in your calling will be severely challenged. It has happened to me a lot. The story of Esau bartering away his birthright is tragic. And if we would avoid facing a similar catastrophe in our own lives, we will all need to take his message to heart. This means we will not only need to understand its lessons, we will also need to be vigilant and faithful to install safeguards in our lives, lest we too be caught, get caught unawares and prove to be fools. What then are the lessons? How can we avoid being foolishly cheated out of our birthright as God's servants and children? There's the first lesson. We must clearly know what are our own areas of weakness. You've got to know. The Bible calls it besetting sins. 
do you, if you just pause for a minute, every one of you should know. I know what mine are. Uh, do you know what your Achilles heel is? What your weakness is? You need to know. Torah demonstrates that Esau took after his father Isaac. We read in verse 28 that Isaac loved Esau because game was in his mouth, meaning that Esau loved Esau, Isaac loved Esau because he loved the taste of the game that Esau trapped and hunted, and which his father then got to eat. Isaac is here described in terms of his appetite. This is what characterizes him. Esau is just like Dad. So it may help you to think deeply about your parents and your grandparents. What were, what were their weaknesses? Sometimes it runs in the family. Who do you take after in your areas of weakness? What negative traits characterize you? Is it a constant need for approval? Is it an insistence on being right all the time? Is it a hot temper or a tendency to treat others coldly? Is it flirtatiousness or other forms of playing with sensual fire? What characterized your family and yourself? Esau took after his father Isaac and was characterized by sensual hunger, especially food. So the question you must ask, I must ask, and we must ask for ourselves is this one. What are your moral and spiritual areas of vulnerability and weakness? This is, um, it occurs to me, this, this is a sermon. This is, uh, this is a sermon of warning. This is, many times my sermons are sermons of encouragement and of lifting up and of, 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 of momentum. This is necessary too. Sometimes we need a word of warning because it's dangerous out there. It's not as simple as it seems. Many of us have deeply entrenched habits of self-justification, self-deceit, and denial. We say that we say we'd like a glass of wine once in a while. Our friends know that we inevitably get tanked whenever we get home from work. Or we say, you know, I like a little wine. But everybody else knows, uh, you know, uh, you're always bombed when you get home from work. But we have a way of just explaining ourselves to ourselves. We say that we appreciate members of the opposite sex, but our friends know us to be flirtatious, indiscreet, and potentially adulterous. We consider ourselves to be sensitive, but everyone else knows that we dominate our social landscape with our touchiness. We're zealous for the truth. Others know how we manipulate people and wear them down into agreeing with us so let's do the hard work of knowing and owning up to our own weaknesses. Otherwise, we may get blindsided when temptation waylays us. We may find ourselves exchanging the things of God for our pet sins. The devil sought to trip up Yeshua. You and I can expect no less. Okay? You know, think about it. Let's look at the second. There are four of these pointers that I have for you. I'm going to give you one more chance. Then I'm going to kick you in the batteries. Okay. Secondly, we must all know at what times we are most vulnerable 
to our pet temptations. In this case, Torah reminds us that Esau is exhausted. For some of us, this is a dangerous time, a time when our judgment is impaired and our resolve is low. If you are a person who is apt to make bad moral choices when you are exhausted, you need to know that about yourself and protect yourself. You need to know, you need to avoid getting exhausted. You need to take measures to keep yourself from capitulating to something you should not capitulate to when you're exhausted. Others are more susceptible when they're depressed, when they're angry, when they're lonely. For example, someone who has a, a, a constant habit of getting high, who has a problem uh, 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 as an escape and as addiction, whether it be booze, grass, or something else, they may know that they are most tempted when they're bored, when they're scared, when they're angry. You've got to know yourself. For all of us, one of the most dangerous times is on the heels of victory or a breakthrough. That may surprise you, but the Bible says uh, when Yeshurun, that's a nickname for Israel, when Yeshurun grew fat, they kicked. When they became very complacent and ve they, they became rebellious, when things were going good, that's a danger for us. Often, on the heels of a victory, it's a time when our guard will be down, when our pride will be up. So be careful of temptations that come on the heels of victory of some kind. All in all, what we're talking about is the question of timing. When are you most susceptible to compromise and to temptation? Two more points. Here's number three. Would you ring that up for me, Sean? Thank you. We must learn to be honest with ourselves about our overtures. Although Esau would come to blame his brother Jacob for skunking him out of the birthright, the fact is Esau is the one who said, hey, give me some of that red stuff over there. We get ourselves in trouble, even though when we get into trouble, we inevitably blame other people. So the new covenant letter of Jacob puts it this way. No one when he's tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But a person is tempted by his own desire, being uh, lured and enticed by it. Then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So don't be deceived. This is the way it was for Esau. He was tempted by his own desires. And he himself made the moves that got him into trouble. He made the overtures. And so will it be for us. So the third question we need to ask ourselves is this one. What fires have you been playing with? What overtures have you been making that, if consummated, would lead you into spiritual trouble? Watch out what you say. Because you may get what you're after, and you may regret it later on. Number four. We need to recognize that after we have played with fire long enough, after we have been injudicious in watching out over our own vulnerability, we will then be softened up for a tragic exchange. We'll be softened up by the, by the forces of evil will set us up to trade our integrity, our, our spirituality, our self-respect, and our power with God for something more immediate and oh-so-luscious something which has so marginalized, magnetized our souls through our drawing near to it and playing with it 
that it's extremely likely we will fall. This fall always has the same proposition embedded in it. We will be offered exactly what we want if only we will simply turn our backs on God. That's what it is. You'll be given exactly what you want. That's all. That's the total price. And many of us will be prepared to pay it. That's what Satan offered Yeshua in the wilderness. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you just fall down and worship me, to which Yeshua rightly answered, Look, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Yeshua understood that he was being propositioned to exchange God and his blessings for something else. So it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. They were invited to turn their backs on God and his prohibition of them to abandon their history with the Holy One for immediate gratification, and they did it. So will it be for us. We too are likely to be tempted to abandon all we have experienced of God this, uh, and all we know of God for this fling, for this one brief shining moment, this juicy temptation. And like poor, poor, foolish Prince Andrew, and like Esau, we are sure to end up smiting our thigh with tears of frustration and remorse, scolding ourselves for having been so stupid, exchanging what is incorruptible for shining trinkets. One more slide, please. The devil's goals, we looked at this last week, are to deprive God of glory and honor and to detour you from your greatest destiny. The kingdom of darkness is a kingdom of spite, spitefulness. That's really what the kingdom of darkness is. It's a spiteful kingdom. It's a kingdom of spiritual beings that in some way resent God and his holiness and his honor and work uh, to disgrace him in some way and to, 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 to be spiteful in depriving God of what he's entitled to, which is our love and honor and respect, and to deprive us, whom God loves, of our great destiny. And, you know, that, and that's not a destiny that's just pie in the sky when you die by and by. It's a destiny, it's a day-by-day -day destiny. We are meant to experience a rich relationship with God a, a, a relationship of rather limitless potential now in this life. But the demonic realm seeks to in some way detour us, to thwart us, especially to discourage us. I want to talk to you. I get discouraged. I woke up discouraged this morning. I went to sleep discouraged last night. But God is not the God of discouragement. He's the God of encouragement. And if you're discouraged, first of all, I want you to know that God is not upset with you. Don't feel guilty about it. But realize that it's not God that drives you to discouragement. God is the God of encouragement. But the dark side, both within us and without us, would discourage us because discouraged people don't expect much and they don't experience much except their own discouragement. 
So I want to bless you with encouragement from God. Uh, your life is not over. Your chances are not exhausted. And your discouragement is not a punishment from God. So do what I do, what I've learned to do. I realize that you have discouraged feelings and just treat it like something you have. You know, it's like I've got freckles, I've got psoriasis, I've got discouragement. It's something you live with. You don't have to be controlled by it. Just say, I feel discouraged today, but I'm just going to go on and carry on with my life like I normally do. It's just something you have. Do not let it control you. May God help us all to be watchful and aware, not only of how others might trip us up, but more so because of how we trip ourselves up in our times of special vulnerability, the little fires we like to get close to without getting burned, and the things we feel we simply must have, and the sooner the better. We need to be careful, lest Scripture's verdict about Esau be true of us. Watch out for the Esau syndrome, trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy our short-term appetite. We, may we be more watchful than was poor, foolish Prince Andrew or Esau. May we not discover the hard way what it means to be a fool. One more slide. There you see how Yeshua dealt with the, the wicked one. He turns away from him. The wicked one has no leverage. May that be true of you. May that be true of me. May that be true of your relationship with your own discouragement and your own temptations. May they not have a foothold. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin and don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let your, your impulses, including anger, lead you uh, uh, to wrong actions which become a place of leverage for the kingdom of darkness. Be angry. You're going to have temptations. You're going to have impulses. You all do. Ha have them. But don't let them lead you to act them out. Because when you do that, you give the kingdom of darkness a foothold, a handle with which to yank you around. Let me pray for you. God, I don't know what's on the hearts of these people. I don't even know if there's anybody here who's discouraged. I don't know if there's anyone here who really feels that they experience um, relentless temptation. I don't know. I do know myself. I know what my life has been like. And you know the lives of everyone here perfectly. So I pray for those of, who are in this room for whom uh, temptation of various kinds is a, uh, a never-ending story and who also are people whose own discouragement trips them up and robs them of the blessings you wish them to have. 
I pray that by your spirit, you would use this service and this sermon to not only warn us, but to encourage us to recognize that God has something better for us than regret. May we be strengthened, and may we walk in our strength to the honor of your name. I ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay, my friends.